Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. The last words from the cross. Father, forgive them. Well, y'all, it's 9 a.m. Friday morning. Outside the Damascus Gate is a road, and on the other side of the road is a flat area near a spot where the prophet Jeremiah is buried. Up above is a rocky outcropping that, if studied at a certain angle, looks like a skull. You can see eroded in the limestone two sockets for eyes, a place for the nose, and maybe a place for the mouth. They call this Skull Hill, Golgotha. It was the place where the Romans did their crucifying, the inhumane way of dying that begins with flogging, where the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the person's back with force. The iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and the subcutaneous tissue. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribs of bleeding flesh. Then the severe scourging with its intense pain and substantial blood loss most probably left the person in a pre-shock state, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep also contribute to the generally weakened state of this individual. The very horror of crucifixion draws people to Skull Hill. They come out of the gruesome fascination with the bazaar. Now the soldiers know that two of the men being crucified today were just average, ordinary criminals, the kind that you'd find in any big city anywhere in the world. That's no big deal. But the third man, the one from up north, the preacher from Nazareth, the carpenter from Galilee, whose daddy was from Bethlehem, his case is a little different. They didn't really know who he is, but they knew it's important because they, they sensed the buzz in the crowd. On that day, more than usual people have gathered. A man named Jesus is being crucified. The word spread like wildflowers. His reputation had preceded him. No one is neutral. Some believe, few ambivalent, many doubt, and many more hate. The crowd is rowdy and loud as if this were some kind of sporting event. They even place wagers on how long the man, the men being crucified would last. And then up the road comes the parade of people. That can't be the one that they're going to crucify. A, a stooped figure, a man not quite six feet tall, carrying the crossbar he was compelled to carry, which mu must have weighed 75 to 125 pounds. He has already been severely beaten. Now walking, now crawling, each step an agony to behold. He had been beaten within an inch of his life. In fact, it looks like four or five soldiers have taken his turn working him over. 
His skin hangs from his body in tatters. His back is, was in shreds. His front was covered with the markings of the whip. His face was disfigured and swollen and they, where they had ripped out his beard by the roots. His eyes nearly shut. And on his head, a crown of thorns six inches long st stuck into and under the skin. A man who had already looked more dead than alive. They laid the cross out on the ground. And then Jesus was thrown to the ground on his back in preparation for the transfixion of his hands. His scourging wounds most likely became torn upon more and contaminated with dirt. And he moved. He groaned, but he didn't do much. One hand over the other. Wrapping rope around his arm and around that arm. One after the other. Rope around the legs, probably bent and partially resting on a small platform. Iron spokes, approximately five to seven inches long, were driven into the forearm side of the wrist so that when the weight of the cross fell, the spike wouldn't rip all the way through the hand. Then nails in his feet, just above the toes. With the ropes in place, they began to pull up the cross. And Jesus' blood spurts from the raw wounds. They lowered it and it fell into place with a thug. Once the cross was raised, his breathing became progressively more difficult. Furthermore, with each respiration, the painful scourgings would be scraping against the rough wood and the stripes on him. As a result, blood loss from the back probably would continue throughout the crucifixion ordeal. Here is Jesus having been laid out to be subjected to this public death on a cross, exposed before the world, beaten, bruised, and bloody. He was unrecognizable. He is placed smack dab in the middle of these two thieves, criminals, just like he's one of them. And yet, what wrong has he done? In his ministry, he has only done good, healing diseases, feeding the multitudes, casting out demons, speaking as a prophet sent by God, teaching God's word and with heavenly wisdom, forgiving sins, calling sinners to repentance, seeking and saving that which was lost. Yes, Jesus has done only good, nothing wrong in his ministry, and yet they crucify him. But what is even more amazing is the first words that came out of his mouth. It's not a cry of natural agony at the fearful torture. But in divine compassion, Jesus lifts his head to his father and prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who are the they? Who are the they? Let me tell you. By his death on the cross, the Son of God is praying for the sins of the whole world, purchasing forgiveness for all sinners in all times and in all places. His blood covers us all. His prayer is interceding for us all. 
Jesus' blood and Jesus' prayer covers both the Jew and the Roman. Jealous council members, hand-washing governors, nail-driving soldiers, mockers and bystanders, weeping women, common criminals, every Judas breach of trust, every public injustice, every societal atrocity. And yes, even good, church-going Christians like you and me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not what they do.